welcome once again to the Dice Are Screaming. Ah! Oh, yes, there's that scream. <laughs> and it's Friday, and it's Randy and Mike once again coming at you. Yeah, with a special 25th anniversary. Well, 25th episode anniversary. Yes, 25 episodes in. Uh, this is our, you know, I, I believe the 25th is the golden anniversary, although that's usually done in years. That's 50. No, 50? 50 is the I thought uh, 25 was silver, but hey, you know, yeah. we're on the silver standard, so I like where you're going with that. All right. But uh, really the to topic today, we're going to have something special, so we'll keep you in stitches for that. We just want to give a quick shout out to Vincent Cario. Man, ah. you've been applauding us like a madman, and thank you to everybody else. Chuck Thorne, we haven't heard from you in a while, but uh, definitely appreciate that little cartoon you left us on the Dexter Streaming <laughs> Facebook page. <laughs> yes, the opening kimono you did think of us, so... Yes, yes, you have honored the open kimono. You definitely, we've made a lasting impression upon you, and <laughs> subsequent therapy is on us. So send us the bill. It's our treat. So, in any case, uh, it's Friday, so it's kind of gloomy here in Michigan. Uh, we attended a nice, uh, or at least I did, Mike was not there for that, but we attended a nice little uh, round at Ten Cars Tavern. Make sure you drop by there on some Wednesday night. Join in the chat there. We really appreciate uh, Tenkar making uh, a nice community for us. And uh, with all the rabble rabble happening, we're just going to just kind of not pay attention to that and talk about good stuff like gaming. Yeah, that's really what uh, the core concept here was. Our passion is for the game itself and for the playing of it and for the encouraging of the playing of it. So uh, that's really the, the emphasis for us. Yeah, I mean, number one with a bullet is, you know, how to make fun games. That's right. And, you know, we're going to be doing a little bit of a shift. Um, the first 25 or so episodes we like to think of is kind of letting you know who we are and just covering some topics that, hey, you know, we've lengthened our format over the time and we've evolved as we got more comfortable with using uh, this type of format to communicate. And we appreciate all the feedback, but we're going to keep moving on with evolving. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're staying, I, I think, intentionally in the 30-minute zone, but uh, we're, we're no longer aiming for those shorter podcasts. We've, we've laid that by the wayside. That, that has a crossbow bolt in it, and it's bleeding to death by the side of the road in a ditch. Yeah, I use so, my dig hasty grave for the 15-minute format. Yeah, that, that, it just wasn't going to work. It's too much fun. Uh, there's too much to talk about. The meteor topics just deserve better than that, so we're sticking with the nice round, close to 30 minute, plus or minus five here and there, but we're, yeah. we're comfortable in that zone. So it's evolving, it's, you know, a yeah, process. We're, we're going to start focusing more on uh, examples of what we do and tales about what we have done and things of that nature, so appreciate your feedback and helping us evolve to that. So Yeah, we got a whole... Uh, stack of ideas, things that we haven't done before. And I'm not saying that any one new thing is going to be uh, the definition of future episodes after that, but uh, we are going to float around and yep. try some different stuff. So we sure. we're really looking forward to this next 25 episodes, and we hope you are too. All right, and so we wouldn't be here without you. Well, we kind of would, but we wouldn't be as much having as much fun as we are right now, so thank you. So on to our topic. What is it? Well, you're just going to have to guess because it's magic. That's right. We're going to talk about a meta topic, magic tonight. I feel like 
Carlos Santana should be playing in the background. It's a black magic woman. Yeah. We could do that. She's going to make a monkey out of me. Uh, <laughs> I'm just going to give you a spoiler right there. That's that's how that's going to end. It's a polymorph spell, and the lesson there is don't tick off a sorceress. That's right. Uh. <laughs> don't double time with your sorceress. Um, so magic, yeah. Um, what about it? Well, magic is a part of the game. No kidding, huh? Yeah. I, I, you needed us to tell you that? Well, okay. Geez, yeah, we're just breaking out the surprises tonight. I mean, I know that many of you may have no experience with this, you know, and you, you may be shocked and, uh, nay, even disturbed to realize okay. that uh, in D&D, magic occurs regularly. But, yep, it is a part of the game, and, of course, really coming from the literary roots, um, Dungeons & Dragons has differed from where magic was, and it always has been in literary, a kind of plot device. Not necessarily ham-fisted, but it gets things done. And from Arthur de la Moore, all the way to Lord of the Rings and some more modern stuff, magic is kind of low-key. You don't see Gandalf casting fireballs. So yeah, he's in the pine trees, and he throws like a pine cone down there, and it blows up and blinds some of the goblins and singes the wolves. But you don't really see him just pumping out the hardcore spells like, uh, you know, you would attribute to a wizard. And so you would say, like, well, if Dungeons and Dragons is based loosely on the Lord of the Rings, why isn't magic more like that? Well, there's a couple <laughs> reasons. And the first is, is that in literature, magic was kind of treated as something dangerous, unpredictable, and its effects weren't always certain. It was used like ex deus machina in classical theater. Uh, it was a thing that you could bring it in for anything in ancient storytelling. So when you wove a, a myth about an ancient god uh, or a myth of a legendary hero, you could attribute magic and they could accomplish practically any deed. You'd disguise right. themselves so that they could creep into their enemy's yeah. camp or become invisible so that they could sneak past their enemies. This is the stuff of legends. But how do you transform that into a coherent gaming format with set rules? Yeah, now that's tougher, because they're pulling from all this classical literature and mythos, but they were also trying to build a structured game with a dependable rule set. Now you could play a spellcaster, like Gandalf or Merlin. In. Now, you know, uh, you had to take magic and you put in a format. Now here again, literature, here is its hoary beard. Yes, it uh, comes forward and gives us Jack Vance and the Dying Earth series where spell preparation and memorization were critical. A wizard could only know so many spells. And once he cast them, he sort of forgot them until he was able to study from his grimoires and books again. So that kind of gained an antecedent to where Dungeons & Dragons went with it. Um, other games have spell points and things like that, but we're really not going to touch on that as much as just the core format of gaming with magic. And how it became formulated was, is basically magic became just a formula-like combat. You had a list of spells, you chose your spell, and when you cast the spell, you announced it, and you understood its effects, and were able to articulate what it did. So it literally, every time you cast it, did the same thing. Now, to some people, you can... Take, that takes away from some of the mystery of magic, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. Worth mentioning, uh, at the same time that this was first being begun, 
uh, as these schemes were first hatched at tables in Wisconsin, uh, they had already developed the core concept of a leader of miniatures, a, a leader, your hero, so to speak, uh, gaining strength through experience and the idea mm -hmm. of the level. So, you know, that became incorporated into the concept of the magic user, beginning with a level that was, you know, fairly limited. And it was this fusion of the, like, Jack Vancean Dying Earth type system with the novitiate level, the, you know, like, beyond apprenticeship, uh, mastery, and then eventually archmage. You know, these, the process of an expanding degree of skill uh, was really firmly entrenched right out of the gate, uh, particularly in AD&D, which shortly afterwards other systems began to crop up with varying different ideas. But yeah, like we said, we're we're sticking with the core concept of magic in a game. Yeah, and we would be remiss if we didn't like talk about some of the, the origins because that's where we like to begin. We like talking about the origins. Fascinating for me. I was kind of there for it. We were kind of in like that silver age where D and D had already come, and A D and D had just started to formulate into its own when we really got a hold of it. And sometimes there were some big misconceptions, like, <laughs> yeah, but uh, how did this you know, elf as a class? What the heck? <laughs> yeah, it, it transitioning from the basic and expert sets to the A D and D uh, uh, first edition DM guide. Oh man. You know, yeah. there was a learning curve. You know, that is, honestly, I, I look back now and I'm like, I forgive myself for yeah. all that I got wrong because <laughs> I I was like 12, okay? Uh, nobody gets that stuff right the first time out of the gate. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we'll spend some time on it. We'll do another DM's confession and talk about our silly stuff. Oh, yeah. Uh, we, we really got to do a DM confession yeah. again sometime. Yeah. So you were warned. <laughs> but anyway, back to the topic of magic. Now, we just got done talking about how it became a formula. Like almost uh, with charts, and you know, you could track magic, what you could cast was available to you, was not unknown. And what has really happened in gaming is to keep magic fresh, they add new spells. Like, oh, I've never seen that spell before. Like Stone Skin. Oh, you remember that one? Yeah, yeah, I remember basically uh, sitting there in awe and shock as my sword repeatedly struck my enemy and nothing happened to them. Uh, except that they kept whittling on me uh, for like, what, four or five rounds? On casting spells, yeah. But yeah. you get the point that every once in a while you can use magic to shock people. Now, because players accumulate experience not just with their characters, but just by playing the game, magic starts to lose some of its luster. So what we're going to talk a little bit about is how do you keep magic fresh? And one of the main reasons is, is the reaction to people to magic users. Now, as we talked before, there was the early editions of the game where magic, you know, you had the fighting man, you had the magic user, and you had a cleric. Cleric was different, that he cast spells too, but they were very different. They came from a divine source, and I think that's important for us to note is that clerical magic and to a subset, druidical magic, are much different than wizardry. So we're just going to call wizardry, wizardry, or arcane magic, if you will, in the modern parlance. Yeah, if I wanted uh, organic hemp coats and, uh, you know, uh, homemade soap and like a couple of beeswax <laughs> candles, I'll call a druid. Uh, oh, boy. Uh, these are, like, exploitation-free products, I promise, man. Yeah, no. <laughs> no owl bears were hurt in the making of this soap. Um, so... <laughs> 
you know, you have a world filled with magic, so it would only be certain that people would want to play magic users. And so I think that's a great uh, thing that we take for granted that Dungeons & Dragons did right off the bat, was letting people play magic users. Because, well, magic is really mysterious, and in its antecedents, it had a lot of worth as just kind of being that sort of nebulous, mysterious force. And the magic user took the brunt of being the glass cannon, but uh, the time came as they raised levels that uh, the mage was arguably the most powerful member of the party. Uh, by the time you're cracking that 10th, 12th level barrier and the big spells are coming out, uh, that mm -hmm. was the, the character who's the, like, hello, game changer. Yep. Hello, wish spell. <laughs> um, so, magic, you can say, like, well, you cast a fireball, the same thing happens. Yep, uh, things get blown up, um, monsters die, and uh, treasure gets melted, and chests get blown apart when their potions are ruined, because, you know, you, that's what you do when you have a fireball, you're just trigger-happy with it. Woo! And then you learn that you've destroyed half your loot, and then the party's like, yeah, that fireball spell's pretty handy, Merlin, but, uh, you know, maybe you can lay off once in a while. <laughs> yeah, walk it back, Archer. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you need to do that every once in a while with the wizards have that talk. Usually after the fire has been singed to his last few hit points. Yeah, we, we talk like that might have actually happened to us not just once. Yeah, looking at you, Dave Brandt. Yeah, wherever uh, you are out there, you madman. Yeah, love you, bro. But, uh, you know, those fireballs to the back. Oh, oh, super discouraging. So you can say, well, that's not mysterious. Well, <laughs> how the spells are approached in the game is, of course... It's part of the nature of the beast. When you make a game, you have to understand the principles involved. If every time you had to reconsult and refigure a spell to do, it gets laborious, and it takes the fun out of just casting a spell. Yeah. So D&D has survived in the face of more complicated and more thorough systems like Ars Magicia and uh, Mage, the Ascension, which allowed you to make up spells and actually gave the feel of magic its own kind of a, a presence inside the game. Still just casting a simple spell off of your uh, spell list for pre prepared spells for the day, or spells known as a sorcerer, it still has the same effect. It's just doing something different. So talking about keeping the mystery in, there, it is perfectly within a DM's rights to vary the availability and commonness of magic in a campaign. Uh, when you prepare a brand new campaign, give some thought to that. Like, how easily accessible are these spells going to be? Uh, are they going to be incredibly rare for anyone but the most uh, steeped in lore? Can anybody learn to be a mage? Is it a thing restricted by bloodline? Uh, or by, you know, like some innate talent uh, that only a few possess? Or uh, wizards testing... Uh pupils early on and only a few people are allowed each year to join the wizard study or academy. Yeah, you know, if, if you think about these little details, you can curb the accessibility of magic if, if you feel like the campaign would be more interesting with less of it. Obviously, I think we're pretty much in the camp of, like, there should be magic in a fantasy role-playing game. I mean, the fantasy part of it is... Like magic and dragons and, argh, you know, just, yeah, well, yeah, let's not leave that out. And there's also non-human magic. And let's not... <laughs> Otherwise, I, I'm getting out my six-siders to play around of my crappy job. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Papers and paycheck, medieval edition. <laughs> I'm a gong farmer. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I'm a radish farmer. So you got off light. 
It's uh, <laughs> I'm the cleanser of his lordship's garderobe. Oh boy. But worst job ever. When you make magic part of when you give us some thought to who can practice magic. Now of course sorcerers and wizards and warlocks have all been incorporated in the game in various ways. But you know, uh, a warlock or witch gets their power from a patron, which can be dark and mysterious. Right, there you go. That's adding that element of mystery. Um, sorcerers come from bloodlines of other things like dragons or archmages or even um, creatures of the underworld. And wizards learn by pretty much rote and practice. Now, clerics, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time, but I am going to just basically that we've done that... Um, Clerics should be treated pretty much, at least in D&D, as pretty much the best magic where everybody trusts divine magic, except when wielded by evil priests. But yeah, I mean, obviously nobody's in favor of, uh, you know, uh, the, the oh, priests yeah. of Umberly, you know, just let me flail a few people uh, until I've brought home a collection of fresh skins. Yeah. It, no, no. Um, it is the best magic in the sense that when... You're dealing with medieval people of faith. Uh, you know, the blessings of the gods are a thing that people want. Yeah, just Whereas like in Greek mythology. A little less trusting of the sorcerer's motivations. Yeah, and druids, to an extent, practice a faith much akin to clerics, but it's different as well. It's a form of nature worship, not just selling patchouli oil and uh, handmade soaps. What? Oh, no, that's all they do. That, oh, no, man. Just, no, that's not what the drugs do. Look at my hand-stitched, beaded, uh, you know, leather coat here. It's really awesome, man. Folks at home, we have to take a break and mention that Mike has a low opinion of druids because every time he's went to them, they've always seemed to have the wrong spell ready for him or some dang quest that he has to go on for him. <laughs> I'm still better because, you know, there's basically a cleric that doesn't have resurrect. <laughs> it's reincarnation. <laughs> well, Deal. Regen. Uh, how many times have I needed that? Yeah. Yeah, I've been on a couple of fireballs where, you know, like, I really needed some parts grown back. But a lot of the um, rural folk tend to cleave towards druidism based on the fact that druids are pretty easy to get along with for the most part. They're neutral, and uh, as long as you <laughs> adhere to their lines and also the uh, ancient... Don't burn down the forest and I'll make sure your crops get rained on regularly. Yeah. You, and, know, you know, know, nice fact. deal. So, you know, right there they fit easily into a campaign, and while they can have their own consideration, especially as we talked about with gods and deities, you don't have to really uh, worry about too much except from evil priests that would tend to do use their divine gifts yeah. to great effect. Behold the might of my god, as I burn your crops oh. and your house, also your dog. Oh, man, those <laughs> priests are jerks. Yeah, nobody um, likes that guy. Yeah, so, yeah, those guys are just mistrusted offhand. And also the child sacrifice thing, that's probably not something that gets them uh, too many kudos from people. Yeah, I mean, you know, you really got to have a rotten kid before you're welcoming to that idea. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm talking like omen child, bad seed territory, children of the corn zone, before you're like, yeah, go ahead, take them. <laughs> but yeah, that that's usually puts evil priests on the outs. But for the most part, people know the priests of their local deities, hearth and home. Mm -hmm. Crops, agriculture, sun, moon, stars, sea. The simple things that make up their everyday life. And they're pretty trusting of those. Mages, on the other hand, come around with, you know, like, Hey, wait, I am almost sure I don't like that guy, but I remember being his pal for like two weeks. Like, seriously, I gave him everything. I, I gave him all the cash out of my wallet. 
why would that why would I do that? I hate that guy. Yeah. Yeah, hello, just figuring out after the fact that you've been charmed and suckered for all you were worth. This can make mages in any campaign a source of wariness, you know, where people are like, it's one of those mages that you should probably not be too trusty of a relationship unless a mage has a really well-built reputation in that area for, oh, he's the defender of good. Oh, yeah, well, you know, we don't mind him. Yep, he gets rid of curses, keeps uh, evil monsters at bay and all that. And occasionally stands for 45 minutes or so on top of his tower with his arms outstretched or until they get tired. <laughs> you know, then retreats back into his library. <laughs> Gorgoth the Barbaria. Gorgoth the Barbaria. Go to YouTube. Yeah, we're in a good mood tonight. So you, you got to look that one up. I mean, if if you just heard us mention it, and you uh, have not seen Gorgoth of Barbaria, it's only one episode. It's just thirty minutes out of your life. Uh, not even that. It was take a, the kids out of the room. Though. Yeah, it was a pilot. Uh, and it never got further developed. But this is not for the small ones. So you, you want the children out of the room. But give it a glimpse on YouTube and you will laugh as we do and you will know these quotes. Uh. But uh, that segue aside, back to the magic I didn't part. know there would be this much talking. Mike has a right that the, sorcerer, the use of sorcery itself is somewhat held in suspicion. Now, you can do this to make your players of magic users be a little uncomfortable now and then, and also remind them that there are consequences to their just casting spells willy-nilly all over the place. But you want to make sure, too, to reward the fact that magic users are viewed with an equal amount of suspicion and awe. No matter what they come from or what edition of your game you're using, magic use is powerful, and everyone respects it. Now, the downside of being respected is, oh, they respect you, all right. They respect you so much, they're going to kill you first. A lot of intelligent creatures will target a magic user directly in order to get him out of the game as fast as possible. Especially oh, yeah. on, in combat or long-term protracted uh, the cunning, military adventures. The cunning GM will look for ways to neutralize a mage. Uh, and that's the DM's responsibility. It's one of the tough parts that comes with the game. Sure, you may like the player who is playing the mage, but if you're dealing with clever opponents, you should at least do those opponents the courtesy of having them realize that, oh, that's threat number one right there. We got to get that. We got to get that shut down now. Uh, you know, I, I want to see her full of arrows. Uh. <laughs> yep. And so that's one way. But we talked about the mystery magic. No? Yeah. What what tools are available to you? Well, your imagination. <laughs> yeah. Being descriptive in describing every spell. Or if the player is up to it, letting them describe the spell. Um, the use of magic items is, of course, prevalent in the game because they're part of your treasure. And it's kind of expected that you give it, whether you run a high fantasy or low fantasy game. But more to the point, making magic accessible but also rare, where people look at it with a certain amount of awe, and you're using the background to kind of give that, that little uh, aura of mystery and wonder. That's primarily how I've always approached it. And yes, even though magic is cast the same way again and again, it still is a part of the game that never ceases to bring wonder. Oh, everybody enjoys casting a spell. I, well, I, I'm sure there's, there are players who are like, I'd much rather be a fighter. Uh, but if you played a spellcaster, 
uh, there is a certain charm to it. There is, you know, no pun intended there. It, it is fun to, you know, in-game wield these powers that, ah, yeah, one of my happiest uh, gaming moments happened... It, I have a lot of happy gaming moments. <laughs> stacks of them. Just, you know, huge, heaping piles of, of good times from gaming. But one of the most recent ones was uh, doing a Gnomish Bard. And uh, Oh, boy. Yeah. How did that spell combo go? It was uh, the bardic talent to steal a spell from... Uh, Anybody you engage in a conversation. Yeah, and I, I engaged a hostile mage in conversation using a projection. Project image, yep. Yeah, a projected image of self. Engaged in a conversation with said hostile mage. And then having used the pretense of conversation or like challenging one another and bragging rights and all of that to veil the fact that I was stealing a spell, I stole a spell, opted to exercise it as a type of limited wish. And you stole his lim limited wish to be specific. Yeah, I stole his limited wish, and the limited wish allowed me to substitute a, you know, higher level bard spell, and I chose the one that did sonic damage to buildings, uh, and knocked down his tower by focusing at the, like, lower base, like, one side of the tower was so severely damaged that the rest fell apart. And then I just got to stand there and go, oops, sorry, I broke your house. <laughs> Well, yeah, uh, but magic was a wonderful thing to use. It was just full of variety. Where you know, who knows what could happen next? That was the that was the merit of the entire concept. It was yeah. a lot of fun. And having the right spell at the right time was just as important as being the guy with the most hit points and doing the most damage. Now, mages, of course, have the luxury of having the spells that deal the most damage, but they also have the largest repertoire of spells that do the most amount of amazing things, from transporting you across the realms, flying in the sky, turning invisible, to enchanting people and items. There's a multitude of things you can do, not even mentioning illusions and things like that. But again, we're not going to delve into delusionists or anything like that. We've already kind of spelled out the basic types of magic in your game and how you utilize them, even things like the divine. Play them to their fullest. Miraculous events that are unfold as a very high level spell happens, even like a raised dead can be a moment of awe for a moment in that particular type. Like, hey, it's just not Bob the fighter coming back to life. You know, there's this grand so, blinding light as he, his whole body shakes off the rot and must of his recent decay and returns fully you know, invigorated. Watch the, the flesh stitch itself back together and, you know, uh, go from... Ashen gray, back to pink and... Breathing and, and inhaling. <laughs> so those are fun things you can do, and they're cheap tricks. Yes, they are, but that's part of the fun of the game. Yeah, get that, descriptive. You know, just get descriptive and have fun with it. Huh. But don't uh, be afraid to evoke wonder in describing a spell or how other people react to it. And just not the obvious things like fireballs and lightning bolts. Obviously, that's going to make anybody jump. But things like the removal of curses, how people are grateful for your mage to do that. These add, as well as some type of penalty for just casting spells willy-nilly, that when people feel that they can trust you, your character gains acceptance into the world. And the world, of course, is the primary mirror that the players receive themselves, and their characters see themselves reflected, and their actions. Oh, and another thing, the economies of magic was yeah. a, a little side note we wanted to hit on today was... Uh, 
Magic in fantasy role-playing alters the economy of the world because you then have these enchanted things floating about that, you know, are desirable. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, here's another point about the difference between a low-magic, mid-magic, high-magic campaign. Uh, in an extremely high-magic campaign, uh, oh, yeah, amulets that uh, prevent against charm spells are, like, they're street-corner peddlers with them by the bucket load. Yep, uh, swimming in them. Oh, yeah. Ten per a silver. You know, just... <laughs> no. Uh, the point being that if you have a very low magic campaign, then whatever it says in the DM guide or the player handbook or, or, you know, whatever book you're working with, whatever the guide may say, if you alter the campaign to make it a very low magic campaign, the value of those things goes up. Mm -hmm. uh, and vice versa, if you make the campaign chock full of this stuff and it's everywhere, the price should go down. Uh, so, you know, do think about the economic impact of magic, the availability. It's like as a, if a potion is no longer rare, is it justifiable to say it's 500 gold pieces? No. Uh, kick it down to 50, you know. But, yep. again, when the players find a treasure and want to sell it, it's not really worth that much. So I, I'm still a fan of that nice, happy medium. Yeah, but also the exchange of spells for money. Like, you have a companion turned to stone by a basilisk, or losing a kissing contest with a Medusa, you can go consult your local high-level wizard who has access, perhaps, to a stone-to-blush spell. Yeah, and, you know, Minnie is the wizard who makes a profitable living having, like, achieved a reasonably high level. They just park it in town, open up a shop, hang out the sign, and wait for the adventurers to trickle in for curse removal and statue back to man. <laughs> Actually, it's a little bit more of truth than that, but you are right that, you know, there is that economy as well, that wizards do kind of expect to be treated well and paid handsomely for their time and services of restoring wayward adventurers from curses and petrified I didn't spend That's... ten years of my life on the roads of this nation, you know, slaughtering monsters in godforsaken holes in the ground, just so that I could do this for half a bent copper. Yeah, so they're going to ask for prices, and or high prices, and even expect service and magic items in exchange. So that's how you balance that out. But that really is part of the give and take of magic, is that we have no other uh, sources to fall back on. You know, there's very few literary examples of this type. Of codified of magic. Magic, yeah. And so, you have to take those things into consideration. Although, if you're looking at uh, spell creation, um, I was going to say, uh, what is it? Spells and Rituals and Ceremonies by my Jean Gonzalez Whippler is a good book to look up. Oh. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it was uh, Talismans, Amulets, and uh, Runes. I'm not absolutely sure on the name of that, but uh, complete book of you know Amulets, Talismans, and other things. Uh, also, likewise, by my Jean Gonzalez Whippler. They're both good books uh, that give superb historical examples of uh, amulet crafting, uh, traditional spells, uh, you know, things mm -hmm. of warding and of protection. Uh, for good fortune, for the attraction of wealth, uh, for the you know prevention of disease. Uh, so all of these get a good discussion. And so if you're interested in campaign crafting, world building, and developing your own materials, uh, look those books up. They're they're at least worth a peek, and they will probably provide you with some prime, real historical material 
that can be transferred into almost any game, but of course you'll have to go through the process of codifying them uh, and, you know, specifying their powers, you know, uh, regularness, right. the, the degree of complexity and activation and frequency of use. Yeah, you'll work all that out for yourself. But also, you can just read fantasy novels too. There's a plethora of them out there. Oh yeah, no shortage of those. Uh, yeah, sort we of talk of, about that. Yeah, our last episode, uh, you know, with the yeah. uh, Appendix N.5. Yeah, and you know, always look, uh, of course, game novels, you know, they also help kind of put it into perspective. At least from a literary standpoint, you know, I, I, I'm not vouching for their l value as actual literature, although they are fun to read. Much like comic, and also, you know, you can also go to comic books. You know, Doctor Strange, you know, is my go-to guy for looking up crazy magic items now and then that get out of control. So, <laughs> and you could always warehouse thirteen it for a while. Yeah, there's yeah. a number of uh, popular uh, sources. Yeah, there's a lot of different references out there that you can make use of to bring magic to life in your campaign and make it, you know, keep that weird edge. Uh, yep. Keep it, you know, a little weird, a little creepy, a little cool. Uh, but most of all, not boring. Right. And that's where we're at, but we would want to end this on two things here. Well, the second one will be in a minute, but we want to talk about psionics. Now, that's another part of magic that uh, doesn't get much. Now, Catherine Kerr's uh, oh, The Dorini we, series uh, is one of my favorites. Dare and I. Yeah. Dare and I. Okay. Yeah. I saw kind of Dorini, but Drow, Drow, Tomato, Tomato. Um, the treatment of psionics and. Uh, how that also works, mind magic, is, is to some DMs, they don't like psionics, okay, and I get that, but I've always enjoyed the inclusion of them because it's a different facet, and it doesn't come from, say, an arcane source as much as from the powers of the mind and abilities. Yeah, I, I liked it in its uh, appreciable form in first edition and second edition. Uh, I, I enjoyed the presence of psionics, but... I will confess there is merit to people's discontentment with it because in its earliest incarnations it was a bit clumsy. It was a little awkwardly done. And in its second incarnation, I think they almost went the opposite route, and by the time they'd finished codifying it, they'd made it a little excessively powerful in some degrees. Yeah, it, uh, did, it did kind of overshadow magic in other ways, but it had a different approach. It's subtle, and I think that anybody who uses psionics um, to some, to most common folk that would be in your campaign world, they would not really see too much of a difference. I have doled out a lot of migraines and nosebleeds to Pilar characters who ran up against a psionically talented monster. Yeah, I just had a great ooze <laughs> attack uh, with psionics attack the party. Oh, probably in my sandbox campaign. So, oh, those poor devils. I'm so sorry. Yeah. For them. Not for the gray ooze. <laughs> I'll feel sorry for the gray ooze that died a horrible death. Um, <laughs> much as it should be. Um, but, but yeah, psionics is yet another valuable form of magic, well worth the inclusion in any campaign world uh, or setting, but uh, you know, particularly to classical D&D &D and modern D&D. &D. Uh, it is still a piece of D&D's legacy, the codification of the powers of the mind. Irresistibly attractive yep. to some people. I always think it's worth the inclusion. You may differ, but uh, in the end, it's what you view as fun, and everybody's going to have a different view of that. But take a look at it and uh, make some considerations about its balance. If it feels too unwieldy to you, you know, feel free to change. But nonetheless, we're getting low on time, and our 
seconds. Here's our solemn moment. Here. Yeah, our yeah. second part that we wanted to touch up. Uh, we're going to leave you off with a moment of silence. Uh, Greg Stafford has passed away. Now, uh, some people know him. Uh, he is the mastermind of Chaosium's Glorantha setting and primarily the RuneQuest campaign or game. The Glorantha uh, setting is uh, much beloved. It's very old, old school. It goes right back to the dawn there. But tied heavily to uh, Chaosium's uh, RuneQuest game, of course, which it gets its name from. Uh, Greg Stafford brung a whole ideologue of gods, spirits, and a whole system of magic that is completely different. And that he is no longer with us is, of course, we are less. Yeah, this was a guy who brought a lot to gaming, especially early in its incarnation, just to... The, the wild west of gaming was happening, and he was there right smack dab in the middle of it. So, we're going to honor his passing with a moment of silence. Right. So, we appreciate you listening, and we'll tune you in next time. But for now, rest in peace, Greg Stafford.